For an engineer, the most interesting thing about a machine is like getting it to work. For a scientist, the most interesting thing about the machine is like, when does it fail and what does it do when it fails? Because that's the edge, right? That's where you're on the edge between what we understand and what we don't understand, where you see the machine and it works really well for doing some things. But then the thing that the situations where it doesn't work, the situations where it can't tell a pig from a dog, like, what is it doing? What happens there? Like, that's where you can really understand something, what, what, how the machine actually works. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. I gotta say, like, I don't think you want to do stuff like this when you've been like listening to your own voice for like seven hours straight and like are oh, exhausted yeah. the sound of listening to yourself talk. You know what I mean? It's uh, yeah. I, I don't I, know if you've. Re- I I read a I read a, I had a I had sections in a book that I read an audio book for before, and it was so small that it was like it was like four it was like four to six hours of work. So it wasn't that that it wasn't bad. It was it, I I got off easy, but yeah, I imagine a whole book, especially especially one like yours, which is especially long and. Uh, would be yeah that would be uh something i wouldn't look forward to but i will say that i'm i'm happy that you read your own audiobook because it kind of drives me crazy unless someone has like a super annoying voice or something like that i actually hate when people get a professional uh um someone to professionally read their audiobook because it's always it's always way too much for me i remember i, I was reading um Oh, I, th- I think it was, uh, I want to say it was like Black Swan or something like that. Or, or I think it was the guy that wrote, um, that, uh, anti-fragile book or, or yeah, Taleb, whatever. Taleb. Yeah. I think it was one of his earlier books before that. Anyway, whichever one it was, um, and I think it was his, I I'm, I'm listening and I listened to the whole thing, but whoever he had reading it, it really took some liberties and he he was like when there is why <laughs> and every time there was a wh sound he did that and it was it was intense and it, it was like barely tolerable uh, and otherwise very interesting book you think that in the modern era that would be a knob that you the audiobook <laughs> listener could be like i want i want this in an australian accent you should just be able to like turn that feature on like with yeah, Siri, yeah. Half the book however you like i don't want any of the voice whs i just wanted to sound like a w bang you should be able to filter that it's like i think like dan Ariely has someone else do his like robert sapolsky's had someone else do like all these people that have these fantastic voices and like great ways of delivering things have had other people. So I'm, I'm glad that you did it. I'm, but I'm also sorry. Well, you want to know you. why I did it? There's two re there's two reasons. There's really two reasons. If you want to know the truth, one is sure. that, you know, my books tend to have a lot of pictures. And so you got to kind of explain around the picture a little bit. And that's hard to do if you didn't write the book, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean you know, yeah, yeah. An actor doing it wouldn't really know what to say to kind of work right. around the picture. But the other thing, to be honest, is I don't know if you know this, but uh, but you know, Nirvana originally recorded in Madison. They were the first version of Nevermind was recorded here. Most of it is not what they used for the final album, but um, they recorded here at Smart Studios, and that studio was available 
I was like, how could I not do it? Come on. That's so cool. Nirvana was my first love. Actually, Weird Al uh, was my first love. <laughs> and, I didn't, and that was I your gateway? And then Weird Al's parody of Smells Like Teen Spirit. That was the first time where I was like, oh, I actually like this music. What is this? <laughs> and then I looked into it and then I got into Nirvana and I was a huge, huge, still am a huge Nirvana fan. Um, well, I might keep all this. This is a fun conversation already. Uh, so that that was, uh, let's just get into it if you don't mind. You want to? Absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Well, great, everybody. You just got to listen into us chattering a little bit beforehand but welcome to the here we are podcast i'm shane moss and my guest today uh, jordan ellenberg is the author of shape uh, the hidden geometry of information biology strategy democracy and everything else it's fantastic i haven't put this off a week i started it listeners usually i well, I'm very honest with my listeners. And I tell them if I've read the book or not. <laughs> and, and COVID, I haven't been reading hardly at all. Um, it, it's like the least I've read in 10 years. And other than papers and stuff. And I was, usually I can get, I can do about three, the first three chapters of like a pop science book. And then I can skim the rest. And that's enough to BS my way through uh, interview and I started reading yours as like I don't think that I can BS my way through this one without reading more and I was really hoping to get all the way through it and I'm I'm like five eighths of the way through this uh, uh, this fantastic um, book but thanks for joining me Jordan oh it's my pleasure to be on can you give us a little bit of your background sure I mean I am. I'm a mathematician. That's my job. That is a job. I don't know if everybody knows that that is still a thing that you can be if you're not like a dead Greek individual in a robe or something like that. But no, it is still a thing. There are not like, there are a decent number of us. I mean, probably, you know, numbered. How many mathematicians are there in the US? I don't know, 10,000, like 20,000, like a certain, you know, most of us, well, a lot of us are college professors like me. So I teach at the University of Wisconsin mm -hmm. in Madison, where I'm coming to you from right now. You know, some people work for the government in various capacities, a lot work for corporations. A lot of people nowadays work in tech and machine learning and things like that, right? There's mathematicians all over the place. Um, How would you calculate something like that? Would you like take a sample size of an area and then <laughs> right, put a little cordon around uh, it and see how many mathematicians uh, like cross the boundary uh, in a certain amount of time? Yeah, yeah. I'd probably do something real lazy, like find out how many members the American Math Society has and then figure that's eh, probably about half. <laughs> no, I mean, but, you know, we do stuff like that all the time. Like if I were to literally look up the membership of the American Math Society, I'd figure that's probably more than like one in 10 mathematicians. And it's probably not like. 90% of all mathematicians. So already that gives me a range, you know, probably right. allows me to get the number of digits right in that number of people who would call themselves mathematicians. Right. Um, uh, and, and so your, your book shape, um, this is what number of book is this for you? This is, well, it depends how you count. If you count, <laughs> I used to want to be, I used to want to be a novelist. So if you count back when I was like trying to make it in the world of literature, then it's my third book. If you count only the books that any number of people have actually read, then it would be my second book. If you don't okay. count my earlier literary what, production. What was your first one called again? It was called The Grasshopper King. 
I wrote it when I was a very young person. I know we're still young, but it was even younger than now. Oh, your first, your first, well, sorry. What was your last book that, that people actually read? The, the one anybody bought. Yeah. That was yeah. called how not to be wrong. That yeah, came out last yeah. Time, years ago. Um, uh, uh, do you mind giving me just like a little summary of that? Sure. I mean, how not to be wrong. It was the first book of this kind I wrote where I just really tried to like put everything in it. You know, when you're a mathematician, you just kind of go through life sort of seeing things a certain way. And you're like, oh, I wish I could like explain this my way. You know what I mean? Not that it's a better way. It's just a different way. We have a kind of a different way of seeing things. And I was able to kind of get so a lot of that into that book, like a lot of stuff that I'd had um, stored up, just trying to emphasize like, what does the world look like through a mathematical lens? And um, talking about, I mean, some of it is like deep and philosophical. Some of it is like political. Some of it is like, just very everyday stuff. You know, we talked about um, when you should miss your plane, like how often you should miss your plane at the airport, where the answer is not never, right? Uh, so once in a while, it's it's good to miss your plane? Well, the idea is that, you know, Sometimes you make some choice. Crash. You make some choice about how early you're going to get there. Ah. And you can set that knob to be like, I'm going to get there five hours early and literally go my whole life without missing a plane. But then you're spending a lot of time in the airport. Probably yeah, too much. You waste too much of your life. You yeah. could set the knob to get there about a half an hour before. You'll still make your plane a lot of the time. I've done that, but that's probably Ooh. missing too much. So I there's love some, this equation. Yeah, there's some optimum, and it's not, you know, the optimal value of something is never zero. Because mm -hmm. so you have to, I mean, you have to calculate how much is that flight you know it's a it's a little bit different if it's if it's something that if it's like new york to la and it's at a time when you know you're going to be able to get on the next one that's a few hours later or something like that and yeah and exactly. you're hung over there's a lot of math involved there that's getting into the drunken walk territory and then yeah but that's that's a different situation than if you're catching a flight from sydney to um, Boston and, and the flight was $1,600 or something like that. And you don't want to screw anything up. And you're right. Absolutely. That it's not just a matter of what's the chance of missing it. Right. It's like, how much do you not want to miss it? And that's going to be different in different situations. And it's going to be different, uh, for different flights. Um, so all those things go into it. And, you know, in the new book, it's fine. That was just sort of an offhand thing in the last book that kind of caught people's fancy. And in the new book, well, you saw it, I talk a lot more about, optimization, you know, this whole field of mathematics um, that's so crucial to all this stuff that's going on with AI and machine learning and everything. Just this sort mm. of basic question of like, okay, there's a lot of ways I could go through life. There's a lot of choices I can make. Um, what's my strategy for figuring out which one is best? That doesn't sound on its face like a math problem or a geometry problem, but it has a lot of geometry in it. Yeah, I I was really caught by the uh, the local optima um that that idea was something that i've been thinking about for a, a week now I've, I've mentioned it on another podcast that i have and it's it's something that uh, kind of applies to there's a lot of life lessons in there if you could uh if you could break down a little bit do you mind going into a little bit of that because there's also i got stuck on a little bit of the ai there there was a there was a thing that I got a little confused about. Well, we can start wherever you want, but there was a there was a section in the AI stuff that was talking about when 
when a one goes in or, or, or when, when a 0.5 goes in and, or if it's over 0.5, it'll spit out a one. And then if it's under 0.5, it'll spit out a zero. I got that. But then in the graph, it was showing, there was like a one going into something and then it put out a three. And I was wondering why it put out a three. I might've just been tired when I was reading it. Um, can you, can you set up the section that I'm talking about a little bit? This is a little bit indulgent for me, or I don't know how long it will take you to get into this for the average listener to get up to speed, but. Sure. Well, I know people usually listen to your podcast with some scratch paper, right? And like a pencil and maybe <laughs> yeah, a slide yeah. rule and a protractor in hand. Yeah, so yeah. I, everybody's ready, I assume for us. Well, I, you know, to start with, um, I mean, let me say this thing about this notion of the local optimum, just so people know what it is that we're talking about who are not already calculus heads, right? So, uh, you know, the fundamental principle of optimization, which is actually incredibly simple, but is very rarely stated when people write about artificial intelligence is you have some strategy for doing whatever it is you're going to do. If you're a person, it's like going through life. If you're a computer, maybe it's learning to like recognize an image or like recognize a song or recommend a song to someone on Spotify or whatever it may be. You have some strategy mm -hmm. and you want to improve it. And what you do is you look at all the very small changes you can make and try to assess what effect they'll have, see which one is best, do that, change your strategy a little tiny bit in that direction. Now you have a new strategy. Now just keep doing that. That's mm. it. That's it. That's a, that's a, a procedure called gradient descent. Um, and you may say like, well, why do you, why are you only thinking about small changes? Why aren't you thinking about big changes? Well, because usually the effect of a small change is much easier to assess, mm. right? It's much easier to understand. Here's the thing I'm doing. I tweak it in one small way. Is that going to make my life better or worse? That's kind of thinking about every single massive change you could possibly make all at once. That's what you call kind of a computationally infeasible problem, right? That's like too large of a set of things to think about. Um, but what that means, so what's a local optimum? You know, optimum means like the best. Local optimum means, I, I compare it in the book to like the situation of procrastinating something. Like there's something, maybe you got to like clean up some huge pile of crap in your house. And yeah, you know, you, you know, you don't want to leave it that way forever, right? You know, you know that that's not like the situation that you want to be in. But on any given day, you're like, if I take this first step and start doing this today, is that going to make today better or worse? And the answer is always worse, right? Yeah. Every yeah. single day, the answer is like, this small action is definitely going to make my life worse if I spend the next hour, you know, facing up to the fact that my room looks like trash and I've got to like clean this stuff up instead of whatever, distracting yourself from that fact in some way, or just doing something that is more fun or something like that. So this, mo this procrastination is kind of caused by being stuck in a local optimum where the state of having everything cleaned up and nice is actually better. You know that that's like a better place to be, but to go up, to improve, you kind of have to go down and then up. You have to make your life worse for a certain period of time in order to right. eventually go up and get better. And that's, you know, Probably, I think that is not a concept that's foreign to people, but the fact that it's a piece of geometry is, I think, not the way people usually think of it. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, I mean, I've, I just, I've just been thinking so much about that idea of kind of, if, if you're sort of blind on the forest floor and trying to find your way to the peak of a 
of a mountain and uh, 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 I mean, you're not blind. It's just covered in um, brush and everything. And you can't, you can't see the peak. So you're just going and, and trying to find, and, and your comparison was that this is sort of what AI is doing in a lot of ways too, kind of trying to get closer to what it, oh, that looks like a small improvement. So you look around for the area where it seems like you're going up and then once everywhere around you is going down, you're, you, you might assume that you've reached the top of the mountain, but you might have just been on the hill. There might be a higher peak uh, that right. you're actually getting to. And man, that resonates with, uh, I think, a lot of aspects of, of life. And I, well, I'm, I'm 40 right now, and uh, I, I know I have a, 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 a lot of listeners like around my between like 30 and 50, like middle age ish. And then I also, you know, there's COVID and a pandemic and everyone's kind of reassessing uh, things in life and things are shaken up a little bit. And, um, you know, I, it, it's, it's easy to find yourself at the, at the top of something and then realize, oh, that's actually not the top of a thing that I want to be at necessarily. I did this with traditional standup early on. And then I knew I, I peaked and then I knew I wanted to kind of expand more and do uh, more thoughtful and meaningful things and pursue more of my curiosities. And then I had to really descend down into I'm not I'm going to have to completely educate myself. It's going to take at least five years to do that. And and I'm not going to be very fluent in science for a long time until I uh, start talking with enough people and have read enough. And then I'll I'll start ascending a different hill. And what I wonder is, did you feel like the bigger peak was in sight? Like, did you know where you wanted to get or did you just know it's not doing it for me where I am right now? I got to sort of strike out in some direction and see what happens. I knew it wasn't doing it for me and I knew traditional standup wasn't what I wanted to do. It was, I started traveling internationally and internationally people were doing one man shows and stuff. And I was just thinking about what I kind of would want a one. I was like a late night comic at the time. And so I just kind of, uh, I, there was a series of events where I was, I should have been as happy as I was in Malibu and like paradise and my career was going well and all the I just had like my dream had just come true of getting this comedy special and just uh, everything on the surface seemed like it was right and but it didn't feel right and so uh, there was there was a couple I got really into evolutionary biology and psychology at the time and that's when I was like oh this is everyone needs to hear about this. I need to completely retrain what I do so I can communicate these ideas to people on stage. I want to I go watch your special now and see if I can see it in your eyes. See if I can be like this guy, <laughs> like he's everybody's laughing, but in his eyes, he's like, I'm not fulfilled by this. This is not what I want to be. Do you think it's visible or do you think it's a professional oh, performer? No, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know. It was a, it was a comedy, comedy central presents. It was in like 2009, 2010 or something like that. And I killed it. And I had the time of my life doing it. And I had an after party afterwards and it was at the after party. I was just sitting there like, oh, I was having a nice time and everything. Family was there, everything else, all these great friends. And I was just like, well, now what do I do? <laughs> and, uh, and I knew like right then and there uh, that it, I needed something a little bit more. And I, fool, I fooled around with things for a while. I almost, uh, yeah. 
I, I got into like watching the news a bunch and to, to oh, like, oh, maybe I'll get into happy. politics or something like that. And, oh, maybe I'll write for the Daily Show or something. There was a lot of I, I just wanted to do something more meaningful than just set up punch jokes. And it it led to a huge descent down. I, I had enough things that I could still make a living of based off my past credits, but it took a long time. Uh, to to kind of reinvent myself, but I'm sure I'm I'm sure there's so many people going through that exact same thing right this very moment, you know. Yeah, exactly. And at that stage of life that you talk about, I think actually that's a perfect example of like potentially the local optimum, like being inside like a career that's very focused. And I know academic mathematics is like this, and I don't know if the first thing about stand up, mm. but I'll bet it is too, where everybody around you is doing that thing and all the information around you is how can I go further along this path? Yeah. You know what I mean? There's like yeah, this very yeah. narrow region, and you're like, let me find the highest spot in this little region <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. conceptual universe. You know, and for and for it's it's funny because for me you could say there's even something a little bit the same in that I was not a writer. I was always writing on the side, but you know, my main job was and is being a mathematician, like doing research, proving theorems. Um you know, and I have found this other thing that I do, you know, writing books and like you know, going around and talking to people and kind of spreading the gospel of math. Yeah, um, yeah. A little bit. So I think it happens to a lot of us at a certain period of our life where you're like, is there another direction yeah. I could strike off in? Now, in my case, I was able to stay doing what I'm doing. Like, so, you know, I didn't have to give up the thing I was doing. I was able to kind of add it on. But yeah, I think, I mean, and I think, you know, you brought up this thing we've all just gone through, right? This pandemic that we're, uh, you know, knock on wood in the US kind of like finding our way out of right now. And, yeah. you know, one of the things I talk about in the book you diagnose the problem. You're stuck in a local optimum. Like there's a, there's better places to be, but they're far away from where you are and the small steps mm. you would take, like wouldn't improve your life any. So like, you know, sometimes you just need a big kick, right? Sometimes you sort of need some big change, even if you don't know if it's going to make your life any better to kind of kick you into a new region of the landscape where maybe you can find your way to the summit a little more easily. And, you know, look, it's my personality to try to like bright side things. So like maybe COVID is going to be that for a lot of people, right? I mean, this thing that we've gone through, a lot of people yeah. are like, not by their own will, suddenly undergoing big changes in their life and being like, oh, this thing that this way that I thought my life was just was like, there was no other option. Like, now I've been doing things differently. Like, you know, maybe people see their way to a new thing. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that one of the sad you know there's the obvious sad things of of the tragedy of the, such a health crisis and lives lost and long-term uh effects and and people struggling financially and everything else but i i think that one of the one of the big things is missed opportunity for like really taking advantage of of this time and exploring those things. Cause I, I know a lot of people that have kind of reinvented themselves uh, during this time and, and feel a lot better off for, I know a lot of people that are like, I'm going to kind of miss this time. <laughs> I'm going to kind of miss this. Like, I don't know if I go that far. <laughs> like the restructuring aspect of it, you know? And, uh, and then, and then there was people that, uh, that just tried to make it work. Uh, there, there were, for example, there were there was comics that tried to do the distance shows and stuff like that and tried to like get by making 
you know, less money doing shows than they were already doing. And then there was, there was people that kind of reinvented what they were doing. And, and I don't know, I talk with a lot of people in a lot of different occupations that are kind of exploring the same thing. But I mean, I think for those people, you know, who were lucky to not get hit directly, you know what I mean? To not get hit themselves or their family. I think people ask themselves like, what, what am I going to do with this luck? Right. Shouldn't I do something with it? Shouldn't I make something of it? Yeah. 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 And, and how does that apply to, can you break down how that applies to AI and how machine learning works? Yeah, well, we got a little bit away from it, right? So, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, the fundamental point I want to make is that I think people often think of this machine learning stuff, this AI stuff, as if it's like some kind of magic, you know, sort of some kind of wizard, like types a bunch of code onto a screen, like in hackers or something. And like, that's how it comes. But the fundamental ideas, it sounds incredible, but all these machines are doing when they, you know, like a text prediction machine on your email that's like sort of like running ahead of you and like typing, predicting the next word you're going to say. All it's doing is building some strategy for word predicting and it's testing it out on the insanely huge body of text that these companies, let's say it's Google, like already has stored. So they have the, any strategy they can think of, they can test on an absurdly huge amount of data to see like how well it works. Tweak the strategy a little bit, test it again. Tweak it a little bit, test it again. Uh, make it better and make it better. It's sort of a, it's basically a process of trial and error, but like run incredibly fast because of the sort of incredible amount of processing power um, that they can throw at it. And you kind of think like, how well could that possibly work? And the answer is it works pretty well. That's the kind of what's, that's sort of what the miracle is that this sort of like very blind process of trial and error where you don't build in any information about like how the English language works or like what a noun is or what a verb is or what words mean. It's just purely sort of trying to train itself to do the best job predicting the past, like words that it's already seen. And having done that, it tends to do a pretty good job of predicting the future. So maybe one thing to say is that about this current state of AI is that the real mysteries aren't how to make it work because it works pretty well. The mystery is why it works. And I think in many ways, we don't really understand that. We don't understand like why it tends to not get caught in a local optimum and sort of like be like, okay, I'm done. I made the perfect system. And then it's like complete crap. Well, okay, that does happen in certain cases, but it happens less often than it has any right to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my brother does uh, a lot of big data stuff and, and a lot of times they put, put in a problem and the AI solves it. And then their job is basically just trying to figure out how the hell did it do that? (laughs) So let's learn what it did to learn to figure that out in reverse engineer. Now that it has that solution, then reverse engineer how it got to that solution. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, these, uh, these algorithms and these strategies devised by AI, they're not like traditional computer programs where a a traditional computer program that does something, you can look at the different parts of it and see what each part is supposed to do. And if some part of it isn't working, you can sort of zero in on that part and and debug it, right. And sort of find the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, these new algorithms aren't really like that. They're not so legible. And if it's doing something funky, it's not like you can be like, oh, I see it's the carburetor. You know, it's not, it's not like a car. It's not, it's not easy to see if there's one individual component. That's the problem. So I, I always say in some sense, you know, I think the future of debugging, it's going to look a lot more like therapy. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's like mm. one big global system that clearly is doing something. And sometimes it's clearly a little bit dysfunctional and it's not working. But just like you can't like 
go into somebody's head and just like remove the part that's faulty and stick in another part. And then they're psychologically more healthy. No, it's got to, it's going to be sort of some kind of more global approach. Interesting. So what's kind of the, uh, the difference between, um, how because you kind of made the point in the book that at least where AI is right now, it's not operating in the same way that a human brain is. And it's kind of, uh, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you, you made a great point about what is easy and what is difficult in math and, and how it's kind of just, a, a you know, what might be like a very easy calculation for a calculator is near impossible for a human, but then there's things that are absolutely obvious to humans uh, that that a computer has the hardest time with. I just got done watching, um, what was it? Something something versus the machines. It's new on Netflix. Oh, the Mitchells. The Mitchells versus the machine. Have you seen it by chance? Yes, I watched uh, it with my daughter. We loved it. Uh, there, there was the, there was the, the dog pig uh, thing where, where, where the AI is trying to figure out if, if uh, it, it's the joke in the movie, they have this ridiculous looking pug and the, and it's screwing up the AI because without spoiling, too much of any this is a small aspect uh the the ai can't figure out if it's a, a dog or a pig yeah and it's actually that's like an awesome in joke about like what's called adversarial machine learning like it's sort of a, it's like a topic i've seen like a million seminars about and i was like i can't believe they like put an adversarial machine learning joke like into like a major yeah kids movie but um but yeah exactly and i think look as some as a scientist Maybe here's the difference between a scientist and as an, as an engineer, right? And for an engineer, the most interesting thing about a machine is like getting it to work. For a scientist, the most interesting thing about the machine is like, when does it fail? And what does it do when it fails? Because that's the edge, right? That's where you're on the edge between what we understand and what we don't understand. When you see the machine and it works really well for doing some things. But then the thing, the, the situations where it doesn't work, the situations where it can't tell a pig from a dog, like, what is it doing? What happens there? Like that's where you can really understand something about what, how the machine actually works. Mm. You you break down a, um, a a lot of history of geometry in the book, and normally it, it was so interesting to me because sometimes I I uh, sometimes I'll find myself reading, say, especially I I don't know um, there's some something about cognitive biases or something like that and and they'll they'll be going through some whole history of what like plato or socrates said about this and that and usually i'm like oh i don't care what they like i <laughs> anything anything before darwin uh, like if if you went back and showed any of those philosophers Darwinian thinking, they would have taken a big black marker to half the things that they said. That the kind of top down reasoning instead of this bottom up emergence is something that kind of changed everything. So I don't want to. I don't really care about hearing about why this person was off in this way. Like I I don't have time for that. Just give me where are we right now? What do we know right now? Is is my is my general attitude. And I've, I have tried to like break myself of that, but I really uh, enjoyed the history that you put forth in your, because it, it really with math, 
it it does feel a little bit more linear with me- I mean yeah there's been revolutions and everything but but you can the the way that you have it spelled out in your book you can really see those steps uh this led to this step led to this step and I think that's I mean that's something that I just always loved about math generally it was the only subject I ever liked in school and I loved it because you could show your work and and it didn't really matter who you were or anything else and it didn't you, you got the answer right or, or or you didn't and you could break down how you got there and uh and I, and I really liked that but do you have any uh, yeah well you're going to love the last 3 eighths of the book i can tell you that much cuz that you know you're in some sense you've anticipated the big finish um something i talk about at the very end of the book which is this fact about math and especially about geometry you know what makes it special for kids uh taking it taking it in school is that it is that one place where you can make knowledge yourself Mm -hmm. you're not dependent on anybody to tell you you know you're not dependent on the history teacher or the history book to tell you what did or did not happen to these people at this time that's in the distant past that you can't access you're not dependent on the english teacher to tell you you know what this story means or like who the people in it are you make it yourself i and and it's not because the teacher tells you that the, the triangle looks a certain way or the two lines are parallel. It's because you can work out step by step that they are. And that's that's potentially very powerful. Look, I'm not gonna say that like every student's experience in every classroom lives up to that. That's the ideal. But the mere fact that it's possible, yeah, I think makes it very special. So, you know, I write in that part of the book about how like in many times in history, geometry was seen as quite threatening because it was a source of authority and a source of knowledge that was not controlled. <laughs> by the yeah. people who want to be the only source of authority and the only yeah. source. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I say that quite a bit with, um, cause, cause there's still, especially this is, I, I've noticed this all along the way, but it's, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's lots more talk of science, uh, in the public going on ever since COVID. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, of uh kind of um people questioning it and everything and you you hear a lot of people kind of make the say like well science doesn't know everything and therefore my perspective is like whoa 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 (laughs) science isn't saying that it knows everything and just because science knows this like what's within these margins and then there's an infinite amount of stuff outside of that that science doesn't know yet that doesn't mean that's your territory <laughs> that that doesn't that doesn't mean because science hasn't exactly figured it out precisely that you have a better answer than it and there does seem like this kind of uh knowledge is this very territorial sort of thing in many ways yeah and you know one wishes it didn't have to be that way but you know humans are humans right we're sort of like Mm. we like to sort of try to stake out territory it sort of comes very easily and naturally to us but um in an ideal world i think people would be looking at what we've gone through over the last year and looking at the changing state of our knowledge and being like okay so i can see science happening in real time i can see us going from knowing less to knowing more and that's sort of like not a matter of like playing gotcha right in science like yeah it's not you're not ashamed to be wrong about stuff 
if you're never wrong about stuff, you're not asking hard enough questions, right? You should be wrong a lot and then yeah. sort of steadily like sort of shave off your ignorance a little bit. But you know, you're gonna, every one of us is gonna go to the end of our days. We're gonna lie down and die, like not understanding a lot more than we do understand. That's a given. Right. That's, right. That, that is how it's gonna be. Right. Um, but but there's such a thing as progress. I mean, I'm old fashioned enough to believe in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I so speaking of the history and how, how things kind of led to next steps and, did you have all of the mosquito stuff? Did you do that before? How long have you been writing this book for, by the way? When did you start writing it? I started writing it, I guess, in, in 2019. Like, I think I contracted for it in the early 2019. But to be honest, okay. I probably wrote most of it last year. I wrote most of it over the course of 2020, most of the pages you see. Okay, so yeah, all right. Because it's it's just great that you have this you you have uh, this history of pandemics and how geometry has been used to figure out what to do with um uh, in, in terms of like how many mosquitoes uh <laughs> we need to get rid of in a region how many pools you need to drain in what regions and how far away uh and and how mathematicians have played a role in figuring out disease spread through history and then applying it to um, some of COVID as well. Right. And it's amazing how it all connects this sort of idea of the random walk that was sort of first developed in this context of like malaria control by, you know, Ronald Ross, who was the guy who discovered the mosquitoes were, uh, were spreading malaria. He also was kind of a wannabe mathematician. Like he always, he was this incredible doctor who won the Nobel prize in medicine, but um but he really wanted to be a mathematician or a poet. Those are two things that he cared about more than he cared about uh, medicine, which was, again, we're sort of coming back to this issue of like, you're very successful in a field and is that satisfying or is there sort of something else you truly want to do? I mean, it's funny, you said, you, you said it's cool how it's all linear and like one thing leads to the next, one thing leads to the next. But I got to be honest, my experience writing this book, first of all, as a writer, I never write the book I plan to write. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're the same with the kind of work that you do, but like I, I write an outline and I pitch it to the publishing house. And I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. And then when I actually sort of start getting right. into it, you find these connections and you sort of find something else. This is a path and then you sort of follow that path. And then you end up going in a completely different place. Um, yeah. It's much more interesting to learn stuff and write about what you're learning than to write about stuff you already know. So I, I don't know if you can see I, I bet um, that is a trap that you, <laughs> that you get into, right? You must. Right. Right. So I learned a lot. I didn't know yeah. there was going to be anything about pandemics in this book, obviously, because you know a lot of us got a lot more interested in it rather suddenly. But you oh, know, it's incredible. Man. Just- you, you, weaved, you weaved just such an incredible narrative all, 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 through at least the first five eighths that I've read, right. maybe it all falls apart in the last three eighths of the book. I can't. Speak oh, it's a to complete. That, it's a complete design. It's actually there's not even complete sentences. It's mostly just like strings of syllables that are. You know, I got a little tired. You know, I was hitting nearing the deadline, so I just started typing ASDF. AS. No, no, I mean, but this. I don't know if you can see. Uh, can you sort of hold up the sort of frontispiece of the book? Like the very beginning, there's this map. Oh, I think that's in the galley, right? This is since we're on video. I want to take advantage. Yeah, um, might as well. I mean, uh, so this was like because yeah, that thing that you're showing right now. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So this was like my yeah, map I made for myself of my own mind, all the different topics in the book. That's not even all of them. That's like a selection of topics and how they're all interrelated with each other. Because even for me, it was like hard to keep straight. It's very nonlinear in a way. But there's all these incredible connections between. Um, I you know, missed different- this part. This is amazing. Uh, so this was your mind map that you made when you were planning out the book? 
Well, kind of. That was what was in my mind, <laughs> but I couldn't really draw that until I'd written a lot more and understood I where see. the connections were. I mean, I think I knew about many fewer of those connections. And then when you start writing, you find these connections that you didn't even know were there. So I think of that as like, I don't, do you, do you read fantasy novels? I don't actually, I, I read nothing but science books ever. Okay. So I was like, if you do read fantasy novels for your <laughs> listeners who like read Lord of the Rings or whatever, this is supposed yeah. to be like the, um, like, you know, the map of the fantasy land that's like the, at the beginning of the book, you know, oh, <laughs> Where fun, it's yeah. like, okay, the dragons live over here and the talking wolves live over there. And, and here's some I scary have, mountains. And stuff I like have that. seen that. That's the one okay. fantasy thing I've ever seen. That's sort of how I think of it as being, but yeah, so that's, it's very nonlinear in a way. It's this kind of yeah. crazy, like neural connection of like all these different things, which, and that's very much the nature of geometry and the nature of math that like things that appear different are connected under the skin. There's some structural similarity that, that, that joins them. This is like one of the, you know, one of the main figures in the book is this guy, Henri Poincaré, who was this fantastic geometer of the early part of the 20th century. And besides being a great mathematician, he was like, a great slogan writer. You know, he could have been a great copywriter, you know, if he lived in like modern era. So he said, he said, mathematics is the art of giving the same name to different things. And mm. that's very much like an animating spirit of the book that there's things which may look different from each other on the surface, but under the skin, there's something connecting them in the same way that the kind of thoughts that Ronald Ross was having as he tried to understand malaria transmission were the same kind of thoughts that Einstein was having when he was trying to understand Brownian motion and how particles move in a fluid were the same as the thoughts that Louis Bachelier was having as he tried to be the first person to actually use math to understand the stock market, which at the time in France, by the way, was completely disreputable. They were like, I guess this is good, but that's not, that's not what math is about. Math is about like the heavenly bodies. It's not about like dirty, grubby people buying and selling stuff in the market. You know what I mean? I mean, that boy, times have changed, right? Right, right. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I've been the brown emotion thing. I've been like, like as as things start kind of as more people get vaccinated and I start seeing more friends again and stuff, I'm, I'm definitely going to wait till I if I see something like uh, some particles floating around on, <laughs> on my glass. That's definitely that's one I'm keeping in the old back pocket to whip out to really impress people. So I, I love I love making all the connect this related to this related to this kind of a thing. Like, uh, that, that's what I love so much about. Um, aspects of evolution. I, I, I just had, I just went on a, a podcast and I did this whole like long thing about hummingbirds and there, and a couple of people wrote me and they're like, how do you know so much about hummingbirds? I'm like, Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know hardly anything about hummingbirds. It was just an example that like you apply all these same kind of basic pr principles that, that apply to, uh, all birds and all living organisms, um, on, on earth and math works in that same way. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about the history, I'll say this, you know, talking about these historical figures, one reason I do it is, you know, as a teacher, I think to be a good teacher, you have to be able to put yourself into the mind of somebody who doesn't already understand the thing you're trying to explain, mm. right? It's fundamentally like an act of empathy to be able to do it. And doing this historical stuff is exactly like that because every single mathematical concept we have, it wasn't like invented to be in a textbook. It was invented by people to solve a problem. And so when mm -hmm. you go back into the history, you are putting yourself into the mind and into these lives of the people who 
did not understand things that we understand now. And I think, you know, the thing you're responding, reacting to where it's like, sometimes I read a book and I read this historical stuff and I'm like, who cares? They were just wrong about stuff. I think that's the wrong, I think that book is doing it the wrong way. I think if you write about people who are dead, people from the past to be like, look how dumb they were. That's boring. Like who cares, right? Then why read what they say? You should be looking to the past and being like, look how smart people were. Yeah, like look yeah. how look how people have moved from not understanding. Oh no, understanding. it usually is. It, yeah. It's usually <laughs> written like that. This is me. It's yeah. a very very unpopular opinion <laughs> that that I that I have, where I like to I like to mock the very sacred <laughs> philosophers of of the past. But um, I wish I'd gotten to do Darwin. By the way, Darwin was one of the things. You know, of course, the downside of like yeah. writing about a lot of stuff and learning about a lot of stuff you didn't know you were going to write about was that there's stuff you planned to do. They didn't do so Darwin's I don't think his name is even in this book but of course you know the tree of life this whole there's a lot about the geometry of trees and that's something that mm -hmm. Darwin thought about a ton yeah he yeah didn't, he didn't make, but he didn't make it in could you talk about the uh, the the mosquitoes uh spread in in relation to the the drunken walk in relation to um malaria and 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 the kind of the calculating of how far uh, a mosquito can travel in a, in a given, I thought that was really eye-opening. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's, it is again, sort of unexpectedly to me, like sort of so relevant to what we're thinking about now, as we think about sort of like coming out of, of COVID world that, um, so again, Ronald Ross, world famous doctor, the conqueror of malaria, the understander of the Anopheles mosquito. Um, of course, once you understand how the disease spreads that gives you information about how to mitigate it right how to sort of like lessen its effect um and here's the problem right you might say oh great so we know that the mosquito carries it get rid of all the mosquitoes okay that's really hard <laughs> like, like you can't really like take like an entire country and kill every mosquito in it that's like not a that was not feasible uh in 1900 when ross was thinking about this and it's not feasible now mm -hmm. um so on the other hand you can do a pretty good job of like clearing out most or all the mosquitoes like from a region like some well-defined with some work you know you sort of like maybe find some sort of circle a mile wide and get all the mosquitoes out of there and then ross was asked well is this actually a good idea because if the mosquitoes are all going to be back a week later probably wasn't worth like the amount of money and energy you spent clearing this entire region so this was the question like how quickly do mosquitoes spread and the math that he came to i mean how would you figure that out well you can figure out how quickly a mosquito can fly. I mean, I suppose they knew enough about mosquitoes to understand that. So you can say, oh, maybe a mosquito can fly a mile in a day. Uh, then in 10 days, a mosquito could fly 10 miles. It'd cover a lot of ground. But here's the key insight that Ross had is that mosquitoes don't just set a course and like fly in the same direction every day. Mosquitoes don't plan, right? That's just not how they are. Mm -hmm. And so he said, well, more realistically, um, Yes, mosquitoes could like spread out really, really, really fast and like reoccupy the territory you cleared them from like really quickly if they made that their mission. But because mosquitoes don't have a mission, because they just flit around randomly, maybe this day they go this way, this day they go that way. In practice, how far are they likely to go? Not how far could they go, but how far are they likely to go? He made the problem probabilistic. Um, and that was... Uh, that was the problem he was thinking about. And he understood that it was like a, a math problem in the end. He understood that he didn't quite have the equipment uh, 
to solve that problem himself. Uh, so he sent it to Carl Pearson, who was like a very famous statistician at the time. Um, and then Carl Pearson kind of put the question in nature, which was kind of like the math New York Times at the time still is. <laughs> it was like a little letters column where you're like, I have a question I'm working on. Um, of course, he didn't mention Ross in it. He completely like hid the guy who actually asked him the question and sort of posed that as if it was his own question, which annoyed Ronald Ross. But in the end, I mean, it turned out that this notion of the random walk um, that Ross was trying to invent, it's one of those things where you feel like sometimes the world is ready for a certain idea. Like this is in 1905 I'm talking right now. This is exactly the same time as Einstein is developing this idea in physics. And then bizarrely enough, and this was a story I utterly did not know until I started writing the book. Um, it's being developed in Russia at the same time as a way to win this kind of like crazy math battle between like the sort of like hardcore ultra conservative, like Russian Orthodox church people and like the sort of angry atheist people. They were both there in the math community. They hated each other. And they were essentially having a theological argument about the existence of free will, which bizarrely enough was like settled by the invention of the random walk in Russia. We now often call it a Markov chain after Markov, the Russian who, who's the atheist, by the way, the atheist won this battle hmm. in this particular case. So free will. Free will. Uh, Heavy. It's, <laughs> so but mathematically, where, where do mathematicians usually come down now? I think, look, mathematicians run the gamut in their philosophy, mm -hmm. their temperament, their attitude towards life. So I think I'm safe in saying that probably most mathematicians would say this is a matter about which math is silent. I mean, we, I mean, we're not, you know, we don't think math has the answers to, we like to think that maybe probably in most questions, there's like a little bit of math mm. in them. There's probably no questions in the real world, which are completely unmathematical, but there's also not that many questions in the real world, which are completely mathematical and that math can just settle. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, let's see. I, I, I like I like a lot of like deterministic ideas, but uh, free I, I don't know I, free free will's uh, free will's an interesting <laughs> one. It, I mean, you know, Poincaré. Another great quote from Poincaré. I won't be able to quote it exactly, but in the book, you know, there's there's certainly mathematicians think a lot about like you know, is there an ultimate answer that God knows to like all these mathematical questions? Mm -hmm. And that's what and and Poincaré kind of had like a funny answer to this. He's like, you know, even if God did know the answer to all mathematical questions and he just like appeared and told us, we wouldn't really be able to follow it. We probably wouldn't understand it. So like, what does it matter? Basically, he's like, he's like, that's not even a question that we need to know because mm -hmm. whether or not God does know the answer to all mathematical questions, like we wouldn't be able to comprehend. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting. The things that we, that we care about. I think it's interesting that we even care about free will at all. Cause it's, it's something that, you know, people ask me about quite a bit and it's it, because it's people don't people like if if you were like, hey, do you want free will? And uh, anyone would be like, yep, sign me up for the free will section. But but you actually don't want to be thinking about everything. All of the, you don't you don't want to be choosing your the what what amount of blood is throwing uh, flowing through your veins you you want this nifty bifurcation process that that has distributed things nice and easy for you so you aren't sitting there consciously choosing which direction the blood goes and 
everything else. So it's, it's kind of interesting, the domains that we do, uh, that we do seem to care a lot about it and other aspects. We are like, Hey, surprise me, take me somewhere. You know, you relinquish control in a lot of ways. And look, I mean, if, if you think about it in terms of our interactions with these machines, machines that can play a game like chess or go or checkers, I read a lot about checkers in this book, uh, or, or machines that produce imitations of language or what have you, it's very natural to like talk about what is the machine trying to do or what does the machine want, right? It's very natural right. for us to use that free will language, even though the machine is undertaking a deterministic process. And I'm not gonna police that. I feel like people sit, use those words and describe them because they feel right to us. And I'm not so worried about whether the machine really wants something or is trying to do anything. Yeah. I just know that, you know, those words, that language makes it easier for humans to understand what's going on and like what the machine is doing. So why shouldn't we use them? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we do tend to over over assign agency to <laughs> to, I don't to know. do you think hummingbirds want to do things? Do you think that makes sense in talking about hummingbirds? Um yeah, I mean, I, I think that they have uh, I think that they have wants and desires in a, a lot of ways, which are which are just more kind of evolutionary drives. And I, I think that they I think that they have. Uh, well, that's it. I mean, it's a good question, but yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Hummingbirds. I think you'd have to go smaller and smaller of a brain for me to. Be like, oh, does that thing have wants and desire? Like I, I was talking about uh, sea squirts recently, which have a nervous system when they're born. They're like tadpoles swimming around and, uh, and, and they have a spine and a tail and eyeballs and they navigate around to find the exact area where they're going to plop for life. And then they attach themselves and then they're never going to move again. They're just a filter. And then they digest their own brain and eyes and spine because they no longer need those things. And, and I would say that I think that the, I think the tadpole version does in a sense have, uh, needs and wants and desires and the digested nervous system version does not. Wow. Well, what do you think about this? So just to sort of bring in another topic that appears in this book, um, I mean, do you, would you say like the people of the United States, like as a body, does the electorate have wants and needs and does it try to do things and does it make decisions like the people of a state or the people of a country? Because we certainly treat them as if we do, right? We talk about the popular will and a big, another big chunk of this book is about this kind of crazy system by which we draw legislative districts and try to sort of translate and try to sort of generate laws in a way right. that we say is doing what the public wants. Well, what does that even mean? Right, and I can right. tell you, it gets real ugly. It gets real dirty and it gets real ugly. So I, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the, the kind of assigning of a personality to a region. And then, and then we're saying, this is a representative. This person is representing the views of the, but isn't that, isn't that kind of meant to represent the, the mean of of something even there that's like i mean our own minds have a lot of competing interests and desires uh, all the all the time between uh, right you know i'm i'm uh i'm a son i'm a friend i'm a 
interviewer. I wear many hats and I have very, I need to eat and there's sex drive and there's disease avoidance and there's all these, there's all these competing um, things. Those two in particular have been in tension for a lot of people over the last year, right? Those last two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but, but I can even, I mean, it's great because just as we're talking here, I can like see you doing math in your eyes, right? I can see that as you start to think about it, you're like, wait, there's a real question here. And I can see the math starting to happen <laughs> as a teacher. Like that's what I'm always looking for, right? Because um, this question of like, what do we even mean when we say represent? Yeah. That's not a math question, but it's not, not a math question. Right. The math is wound. And when you start talking about, is it like a mean or an average or something like that? You're unavoidably getting into that mathematical language. And so, you know, it's a very hard, naughty political problem with math wound up in it. And so, you know, one of the things I write about in the end of the book um, is the long and kind of sordid history of sort of like mathematical manipulation of, of outcomes. Mm. And, uh, you know, then I do this stuff about fighting authority at the very end. You know, you got to kind of get real dirty right before the end. And then you have something uplifting at the end. You know, you want people to walk out of the play, like singing the happy song, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I like a good, I like a good tragedy at the end. I like a good sinking feeling once in a while. Very few oh my people God. go so you, for it. So but... you like King Lear. I like the ones where they all get married at the end and they say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could tell you, you're, you're a more jovial person um, <laughs> than I am, but, but yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I mean, as we're talking about this, I'm kind of thinking about psychological heuristics being very similar to these local optima and and these where it's you know when we're talking about a representative uh, a heuristic is uh, this rule of thumb that is representing this probabilistic uh outcome in in a way where where you're saying if you do this in this situation it will work to your benefit 65% of the time or something like that. So there, yes, there's yeah. a cost involved there, but, but, but that's a really interesting metaphor, right? I mean, I hadn't really thought of that, but right, right. Sort of a mental heuristic you use acting as a proxy for some much, much, much more complex thing that you're not going to be able to deal with directly in the same way that in theory, the person who's in the state house on your behalf is a proxy for this incredibly complex thing that's not just you, but the other however many thousand people in your district who are reportedly mm -hmm. represented by that person, right? And um, like, as with any heuristic, uh, you notice it when it doesn't work. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that's hopefully, not right. always, um, hopefully you right. notice it, yeah. Right, but actually, I'm just gonna push this metaphor a little harder, yeah. right? Because the danger is, and I think you must know this well for thinking about heuristics, is that you start to mistake the heuristic for the real thing. Yeah. Like you sort of start to forget that it was supposed to be a stand-in for something. And in the same way, right, you 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 don't want to make the mistake of thinking about what some group of people in the state house decided as being identical with what, in some sense, the people actually decided. No, it's just a proxy for that. It's just a heuristic. It's just a stand-in. You better never forget that. Right, right, right. Interesting. Have you seen Westworld by chance? I I did, and I have no idea where you're going with this. And now I'm very interested. To, uh, it's just um, they talk a lot about AI and and oh, uh, yeah. and and, uh, and heuristics and what might uh, what might happen. I, I mean, it, it's 
I'm curious what you have to say. About, I, I mean, you must get the question a lot of like, are the robots going to take over? You do AI. So that's, that's the like a go-to question you hear a lot of people make. And, and you had this, you had this lovely um, quote in the book, which was something to the effect of uh, don't be scared of math, basically. <laughs> could you, th- could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I would say, look, like we just said about like, you know, King Lear versus comedy, like I do tend to bright side things. So like, Mm -hmm. but in particular, I feel like, and this comes back to this question of like different kinds of tasks are more or less difficult for different kinds of minds. The fact that a machine can play Go much better than a human or chess or checkers or something like that, that's a particular kind of task that machines are very well suited to do. I don't think you should look at that and say, well, that just means that computers are smarter than us. That just means that like in five years, the computers will be able to do everything we do and much better. I'm not saying that's impossible, by the way, but I'm saying that is not determined by the fact that they're very good at tasks that are exactly suited to their skills, right? right. I mean, they're still, I mean, they still have problems driving a car, as you know very well. Although you could argue that in some contexts, they're better at driving a car than a person. And in some contexts, they're worse. That's one where I think that there's sort of different metrics on which you could say one is better than the other. And Mm -hmm. there are also sort of very basic tasks. Um, You know, famously, a a machine can't fold a shirt. Did you know that? Uh, Basically, basically something that is incredibly easy for like a 15 year old who works at the mall, like you cannot the most expensive. What do you mean it can't fold a shirt? Really? A machine just can't fold? It's just impossible. That's what I've read. We should look it up. That's not in the book. I've researched it, but I mean, it's, but, but the point is it's very plausible that there's things. So that are, so, yeah. But that said, you know, obviously what I know best is mathematics. And I think the sort of yeah. relationship between machines and humans and mathematics is fascinating. And I do think that um, even just the basics of like calculators and computers have already changed how we do math. We sort of use them as our assistants. And I think maybe what I think is most likely is that they'll be upgraded from assistants to partners, not superseding us. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one thing I say in the book, just talking about this relationship between um, trying to train machines to sort of, in some sense, think mathematically, although not in the same way that we do, is that, you know, you might start by saying like, wow, our machine's going to figure out all the answers. And I'm like, no, that's not an ambitious enough goal. The machines should be asking good questions. That's what we really need them for. I mean, that's I a much that. bigger goal than giving all the answers. I love that. It, it, it set me off on, on just imagining some beautiful future where, where you just sit there and have and go on an app and, and the AI just asks you these incredibly fascinating questions that no one's ever thought to ask before. That would be, yeah, exactly. That would be incredible. Yeah. It, it is funny that, to me, it's it's always seemed a little funny to be scared of AI, at least, at least just yet. Um, but the the idea of like like you said, getting really good at chess, like oh now they're gonna take over the world. Well, if I met a human 
that was really good at Sudoku, I wouldn't be like, I guess you should be king. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's such a weird specific thing. <laughs> or or like if someone trained their their dog to like walk on two legs, I wouldn't be like, stop training that dog. <laughs> it's gonna take over. Next, it's gonna be tying a tie, and then what? Uh, like it, it just seems like an odd. An odd fear, at least for where we're at right now. I, I mean, I guess there could be some tipping point where all of a sudden AI is learning to reconstruct itself faster than doing all these things we can conceive. And even at that point, why why would it why would it be our yeah. enemy? Uh, yeah, I would no, I would never say it's impossible. I would just say it's not it, it like most actual things in the world, it's neither impossible nor inevitable. Mm -hmm. Most things are like that. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm like all over this place with this conversation, but you've just had me. No, but look, you saw the picture at the things. beginning of the book. I mean, that's what the book is like, right? I mean, there's oh, a story, good. there's a through line, but at the same time, there's like a lot of stuff in it and there's a lot of connections. Between this all the is definitely things. what my brain is like all, all the time. Exactly. So if I, you want your brain to look like that, then you should read this book. <laughs> I, th I don't even know if that's like good or bad from a marketing point of view. Like, I'm not sure. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. I don't know. Uh, you know, you should, you should definitely read this book. It's terrific. Could you, um, could you actually talk a little bit about, so I, where I'm at right now, I had just gotten into, I think I'm in kind of the second chapter talking about COVID. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the chapter the, oh, right. the cubic the chapter model. 11, I can see the cubic, right? Yeah, the terrible law of of increases um, oh, is where yeah. I'm at. Uh, but it, would would you mind talking a a little bit about some of the? Or it doesn't necessarily need to be COVID, but just math. Uh, uh, how people are, how a mathematician is um, trying to model and make predictions, and what happens when when people are like, how did they made a. They said it was going to be this prediction, and then it was this, and it, it, well, now uh, now I don't know who to trust, and <laughs> and it's, but it's. It, it, I I liked breaking down. Can you break down some of like the basics of where the very simplest, because it was it was nice. Uh, I saw it kind of broken down in a pretty like manageable algebra equation. Uh, like this is this is where you start with modeling a pandemic, say two people are going to get it for, or, or are going to spread it um, for everyone that has it. So if, if that's over the course of, of 10 days, that means that a person with COVID is, is going to have, um, is going to be spreading it to 0.2 people a day. And then you're kind of going from there and turn, I, I don't know how much in the weeds we should get um, into this, but it kind of, but it, I loved that it started with like, you can find this pretty simple model to like get a little bit of a picture. And then you just keep on adding more and more, um, kind of complexity to it from there. Right. I mean, a model is a piece of technology, right? And with any technology, as you develop it, you start simple and then you kind of bolt on more pieces to give it more functionality or to make, make it be able to operate in a wider range of circumstances. And, you know, mm -hmm. modeling the spread of a disease is no different. So just as you say, you know, the basic idea is, you know, think of it, it doesn't even have to be, right? I mean, you could say like, you know, a secret and you tell it to two people. Now three people know it. And if the rule mm -hmm. is that the secret is like really juicy and everybody who hears it tells it to two more people, 
then each of those three is going to tell it to two more people. So that's six new people who know it, who know it. And now there's nine. Then each of those nine people is going to tell it to two more people. That's 18 more people, a total of 27. Each day, three times more people know the secret. And that's exponential growth, a so-called geometric progression. It always comes back down to geometry in the end, right? Um, and that, I mean, and sometimes that's very simple, but that's the basic model for sharing secrets or for sharing diseases. I mean, in some sense, where does this come from? The same guy, Ronald Ross, something else I didn't know, the same malaria guy 10 years later. Um, and because he's this sort of super ambitious guy, he didn't want to just develop a theory of pandemics. He wanted to develop a theory of what he called happenings. He's like, I want this to be general, like a physics of like all of human behavior. So, um, and he brought on a mathematician, Hilda Hudson. He knew he didn't know enough math to really do this by himself. So he kind of acquired. <laughs> I'm going to solve everything that there is. You know what? I should probably work with a mathematician. Too. Exactly. I, I should probably get one person to help me solve <laughs> everything that there is. So Ross and Hudson, yeah, they set up the beginnings of this model. And of course, there's something already that you have to take into account because you could say, oh, great, simple. Every day, three times more people uh, know the secret. That's called exponential mm. growth. The problem is those numbers get like really big, really fast. And you're like, great. Okay. According to my model, like a hundred billion people know the secret in 30 days, whatever it may be. Well, that's more people than there are. So something has gone wrong. I They tell a funny story in the book about someone sort of quite serious. This was around the time of 9-11. And somebody was like, according to my model, you know, if an enemy released smallpox into the US, 77 trillion people could become infected like within a year. And it's like, okay, something's gone wrong, right? Because there aren't 77 trillion people. Unless it there makes you birth trillions of people <laughs> that are infected. Uh, yes, that would be a hell of a smallpox <laughs> attack. So, um, right, so then you have to put another piece onto the model, yeah. something to account for the fact that, you know, the virus uses up susceptible people in the same way that the secret kind of uses up people who don't know it. I mean, what I, the part you're about to read, here's the thing I found so cool. So I sort of, I go back in history to the beginning of this way of thinking, which is like, um, so we're going back to the 1850s, like a cattle plague ravaging Europe called Rinderpest, which I had never heard of. It turns mm -hmm. out it's actually, it's, it's the disease that jumped to humans and became measles actually. It was a cattle plague first that jumped species. Humble beginnings. Uh, exactly. But it's, um, but basically the, the first people to think about what the shape of a pandemic would look like and how it would rise and how it would fall. This was done before they even had the germ theory of disease. Like they had no idea how a disease would spread, or maybe they had ideas that were wrong, actually even worse. And yet this is sort of the power of math. They were able to sort of do pretty good inferences without understanding the underlying mechanism at all. In fact, he even raises a footnote. This is now I'm talking about William Farr, who was this kind of pioneering epidemiologist of the 1850s. Like he even kind of puts in a footnote, you know, some people think that there's these little microscopic living beings that are like jumping from cow to cow and causing the disease. But like, I, I don't know, like nobody's ever seen one of those things. That seems like a little wild. I just, I feel I should mention it in a footnote because some people say that, you know, what I mean? but nonetheless, despite not understanding this, he was actually able to make, to have a pretty good understanding of, you know, he was able to say, hey, this is actually near its peak at a time when the general conventional wisdom was, this is rampaging out of control. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. So th this is, I, I really, 
I did have fun kind of reading this um, this section. That was it. Was kind of breaking down the the basic the starting formula was if you have if you take the number of infected people today, and then you add point two, which is the average of how many people someone's infecting a day, times the number today, times um, uh, times the number of susceptible people divided by a million. Um, and then uh, I'll, I'll put this in the description so people can just mm. see it and look at it a little bit uh, better. But uh, minus um, 0.1 time. So so then it's minus 0.1 because it, if each person is having it for for 10 days, that means that there there's people each um, e- each day, 0.1 people basically times the number of people that have it are no longer infected in our immune, at least in, in a simplified, we're not talking about mutations and, and everything way. Right. And, and that's how you're kind of calculating. And then you just kind of put that in and that's how you can calculate what numbers might look like tomorrow and start charting these graphs. And then, but as I saw that, which is like, you know, for the average person, I think if they saw this, it would, it would take maybe a little bit of time to explain. And then I think that they would be able to get it. I didn't explain it very well just now, but I think they would be able to get it. But then, then when you throw in like, okay, now what happens when you have a mutation and it seems some people are immune to it sometimes and others aren't. And there's this rate of reinfection. And it it just seems like such an insane um, mathematical issue to figure out as you just keep on adding more and more of those variables. Yeah, it is. And, you know, that's why we don't have a crystal ball about this stuff. I mean, by the way, let me just say, I mean, I always, I always try to write in such a way that I always say the stuff I write, you can read it with a pencil in your hand, or you can read it without a pencil in your hand. Cause I know the mm-hmm. different people approach this stuff in different ways. What I did, what I never want to do is write a book that's about math, but the math is not there. I like to yeah. put some of it actually in so that if you want to, really engage with it and get in there and like write stuff on a piece of scratch paper, you can do it, but also you're never that far from the story, right? Yeah, never, yeah. Like I try to sort of, I, I want the book to work if you want to read it casually, or if you want to read it, Hey, I'm going to like follow this with a pencil and like do some of these computations by myself. I want to, you know, I want it to really be there on the page. Yeah. I hope, I mean, I hope I didn't intimidate any listeners with that poor reading of, of that formula, but, but when it's broken out and, and, and this is like such a small section of the, the book, like you said, you, right. you put a few of these things in here and there right. and a lot of it's but I like the story. It, yeah. But, but, you, um, but you know, yeah. But, but you know, the one thing I compare it to you in the book, I mean, you're absolutely right that we don't have a crystal ball and we can't just by math predict the future of COVID or any other pandemic. I, I sort of compare it to like a tennis game, you know, like you can do physics and sort of estimate like the flight of a tennis ball pretty well. It's pretty easy to say like, what mm-hmm. happens if you throw it up in the air? If you hit it with like some amount of, that's harder, but you can sort of still do it by physics. But that doesn't mean that you can tell who's going to win a tennis match mm-hmm. by physics, right? Because what we act, what the players actually do affects what happens. Just right. like what we do and the choices people make both collectively and individually affect the course of a pandemic. Nonetheless, if you were going to try to analyze tennis, the physics would be where you started, right? If you're a tennis player, you do kind of want to have some sense of if I slice the ball a certain way, like how's it going to go? 
So mm. I think that's really the right way to think of it. The model is not a crystal ball. It doesn't tell you the future, but it does kind of establish the basic mechanisms where you can make some kind of guesses about if I do this, what might happen? You know what I mean? Like nothing is, nothing is certain, but it sort of tells you just like the physics of a tennis ball, the, the basic thing that you're affecting when you take some human action. Yeah, yeah. Has there been any moments during COVID where as a mathematician, there's been things that have just been incredibly uh, stimulating? I've talked with virologists that, you know, as tragic and everything as COVID is, there's people that there's virologists like that have almost like a reverence for or like are impressed by like learning about what it's doing. They're like, wow, this is so interesting. What is, of course, no one wishes that it was doing that thing, but learning, uh, learning about how it's interacting and, and spreading and everything. And, and they're like, this is such an impressive uh, virus. Have you had anything that like that as a mathematician where, where you've had to kind of, where you found yourself thinking about all of these numbers of variables and like, oh, how would you go about calculating something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see it on my blog in real time if you want to see, like, as I was sort of wrestling with some of these ideas, like from like last, like April and May, you know, sort of thinking about all these kind of competing ideas about what we could expect and what was going, you know, when we knew much less about how transmission worked, what mm -hmm. can you do besides look at data that you have and try to figure out what's going on under the hood where we can't see? Um, I, you know, I think what I think is when there's a crisis situation like that, it's human to want to feel useful, mm -hmm. right? So whatever expertise it is that you have, um, you, you can't help wanting to feel, well, let me try to bring that to bear somehow. How can I be useful in this situation in which, um, you know, so obviously, people who know how to make vaccines, they were the really useful people, right? Like way more, way more than the mathematicians. But I mean, everybody, I think like people who were like gifted storytellers were like out there telling stories to people and telling stories of the pandemic, like people who are, I mean, every, I mean, you know, how can you not, right? How can you not be in a situation like that and say like, is there some way I can do something for somebody right. as indirect as it may be? And so I think, as you say, scientists, I think very much, uh, felt that and we're like let me put down this other thing i was thinking about and think about this like how could you not hmm. um well i'm going to uh i'm going to shift gears a, a little bit this is this will get some of some of my listeners um <laughs> perked up a little bit I, I you you saw some uh or i i saw in the intro you mentioned um you mentioned that during uh, during ayahuasca experiences, um, people see geometry during during some of these experiences, and um, and I was I haven't read your whole book, but you you talk a, a bit about information and consciousness um, toward the end, and I was I was curious if because uh, I was. Do you do you get into do you get into fractals or anything like that later on in um, in the book? I, was... I only glance off it. It's like one of the many things that would be great to talk about. And um, I, I, I glance off it when I talk about the kind of complicated question of how you measure the perimeter of like a state or a district, because that's very related to fractal geometry. Um, well, the reason why I bring it up 
was because I've had some psychedelic experiences myself. I've 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 seen fractal like. Um, uh, Wait, have you taken ayahuasca? Things? Did you have this? Because uh, I was reading. I'm going to be honest with you. I read about this experience. This thing I read about and reported about. Oh yeah, I yeah. I've done ayahuasca a couple times, but I've smoked DMT a lot of times. Um, and then you have yeah. these kind of geometric visions. I'm super oh, curious. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 yeah, I have a lot of ideas about them. Uh, so, so a lot of people that have. I don't us, even know what DMT is, by the way. I'm just going to be completely straight with you. I did not oh, know. Oh yeah, that it's it's, it's dimethyltryptamine. It's the active ingredient in ayahuasca. So, oh, so, okay. so if you smoke it, it's actually like a concentrate of ayahuasca. So it's an exceedingly intense experience that is, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it comes on exceptionally fast and it's very, very, very powerful and uh, way more jarring than ayahuasca, which is one of the more uh, out there kind of experiences that you can have. So take that times about a hundred, but it's a very brief amount of time. It's like five minutes. It can feel like uh, lifetimes. Like it can feel like a thousand years, uh, really easily. And a lot of, a lot of people think that it's, you're seeing these kind of different worlds because that's what, if you were, if you were in the experience, just subjectively reporting what it seemed like and felt like, and it would seem like just a completely parallel, um, universe, uh, or multiverse. And sometimes there's beings there and everything else. Well, I've always kind of had a what I've what I've liked about it is that I I have my take is that you're you're seeing um, kind of like a multiverse of perception inside of your mind. You're seeing some of the emergent properties of perception and consciousness, like a different layer. Like if if you were to if you were to make a picture. Uh, you know, you, you start with the, the line and then maybe you put some coloring in and then some shading and, and your brain's kind of doing the same thing, this kind of layered approach of stacking and then adding like a dimension and adding uh, all, all these different things that have to, that emerge into this fantastic fluid interface we call consciousness, but kind of the, the bare bones uh, of it is, uh, is a little more simplified um, and so, so you see all these, there's all these fractals and things that happen within it. And I always kind of, so I, I guess my take, I'm actually sort of known for having like a grounded take on these experiences, which is, which is that I, I think that, uh, that it's, um, it's, it, it's something that, uh, it's it's a window into our minds, basically. And I I know some neuroscientists that have taught me off the or that have told me off the air that are like, oh yeah, I I was going to be in marketing. I smoked DMT and uh, as an undergrad, and that's why I'm a neuroscientist. And now it changed the the shape of things. But but the I love the idea that DMT is robbing us of some of our most talented marketers. So like, you know, who knows how much better marketing would be if all the future marketers hadn't smoked DMT and went into neuroscience instead. And uh, I'm always like, I'm I'm always skittish about getting into a, a drug conversation with uh, with any of my guests or whatever. But but there there are, I mean. One one thing that's definitely universal: if if you smoke enough DMT, you are going to see a lot of fractals, lots and lots and lots of fractals. And I and I thought that what what would be interesting is uh, considering 
considering that fractals like a coach snowflake or something like that, which is this interesting way of kind of, in a way you're able to fit infinity inside of a finite space with kind of this recursive sort of a, uh, a program. And I, I thought what an interesting way that, that the brain could be putting together consciousness or kind of delivering packets of information in, in, uh, like packing a lot of information into a small, like deliverable little package. Yeah. Uh, Wow. I mean, there's so much stuff there. Let me just connect it to something we talked about before, which is remember I was saying that the most interesting thing in studying an artificial thinking or learning system is what does it do when it's failing to do the thing that you think it's supposed to be doing, right? So if you think of your own human perceptual apparatuses, what's its job supposed to be seeing like what's in front of you, like out there in the physical world, like finding out if there's like a rock flying at your face or if there's like a Jaguar running up behind you, you know what I mean? So right. you're intentionally disrupting that. I mean, this is, I think it's a perfect example of saying like, how do you learn something about how the apparatus actually works by giving it some stimulus, doing something to it, putting it in a context where it is kind of failing to do the thing that is its ostensible purpose, like telling you what's in the physical world right around you. And yeah. when it doesn't do that, what is it doing? That's how you can really learn something about how the machine works. Yeah. Yeah. And inhibiting certain processes and, and everything too. And so I don't know. I just, I just thought I'd share that with you just because I had read it in the beginning and, and, uh, I, I didn't know how into fractals you were or, or well, I am. I taught about in this semester, actually, my yeah. regular old class to people in math 521. And actually, you know, the, the thing about talking about a book you've already written is that every conversation you have with an interesting person is like, oh, that would have made a good chapter, right? Because that <laughs> yeah. I could have done. I could have talked about Cantor, who kind of creates the modern mathematical notion of infinity with these so-called Cantor sets that very much have this like recursive, um, infinite amount of information in a finite space like kind of vibe um and who was at the time sort of like people were like is this guy a sort of mystic weirdo or is this guy like a sort of uh great mathematician um oh it was pretty it was pretty clearly recognized that what he was doing was mathematics and not mysticism, and not mysticism. but um mm -hmm. but yeah all i can say is it's a direction i could have gone that would have been another great chapter and an already kind of thick book but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm glad we got to talk about yeah, it yeah um, you, you you did it you 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 uh you packed quite a bit of stuff in in the already 253 pages that i that i have read so uh we got another 150 to go um but uh yeah this is this is really fantastic and it just so this is we're actually recording um a little bit before it comes out but this is this is out may 25th right yeah, May 25th. It's my birthday, by the way. So this oh, happy is, birthday. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. by, by the time everybody's hearing this, I will be wishing you happy birthday in the past. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, so people can, upon hearing this, you can now go on and check out Jordan Ellenberg's uh, book, Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. I feel like we we um, we shouldn't end with some uh, drug tangent that that isn't necessarily in the book. Do you have uh, do you have some stuff that you want? Oh, I have a great question for you. If. 
if uh, so, I used to I used to love math. I I absolutely hated school for the reasons we already like discussed. Still do, to be honest, uh, I do. I really do. And it, well, it rekindled my uh, my love a little bit reading your book. And I I've thought many times that I got to start. I got to get back into um, learning math again. Cause I used to, when I was a, when I was a kid, I'd have like babysitters that were older than me and I'd have them bring their math books over when they came and stuff. And I would, so I was learning algebra and stuff when I was in like fifth or sixth grade and everything. And I, I just loved, I would abandon all my other homework and, and do math problems. And, and, um, and, but if someone's, you know, in school, you had textbooks uh, that you'd, you'd uh, arrive at, at in uh, Algebra 1. You'd get the Algebra 1 textbook and you'd learn that. And then, then you'd go to Algebra 2, then Geometry and, and so on. If you wanted to uh, get into math as an adult, um, where would be a good place to start? Well, that's a great question. And I think um, what the answer is um, a little bit depends on um, what your goals were and what you wanted to do. But just to sort of throw out, um, just like, I mean, I'm, I'm a book guy. So just to throw out some books that I know about uh, that mm -hmm. I think are really great. I think um, Steve Strogatz writes wonderful books. Um, his most recent one is called Infinite Powers. He has another book called The Joy of X. And those are the ones I would recommend for like, somebody touching on the math topics that are in school but from a much like richer more narrative more historical like more fun mm -hmm. way like infinite powers is about calculus right it's like if you ever want to know like wait why did people do this just to torture people on their ap exam like no like that's and it, he really like tells the story um i think eugenia cheng's books are like really eccentric and interesting and weird and she will talk about sort of like the kind of like higher level research math that she works on, but in connection with just like sort of how she sees everyday life through that lens. So sort of talking about like much more advanced and contemporary math. Um, and then I think, you know, for the side of, um, if your goal is to more to understand sort of stuff that's happening in the world right now, like a little bit less theoretical, more practical, um, you know, like a book by a very close friend of mine, uh, Kathy O'Neill, called Weapons of Math Destruction. is like a wonderful and very popular book. That's and it's sort of about the algorithm. an adorable title. Right? I love it. Yeah. What, what the stuff she writes about is unfortunately not so adorable. Right? It's about <laughs> kind of the algorithms to which we hand it over, like a lot, maybe a lot more authority than we ought to have. And by the way, not because, not because they're like incredibly super intelligent robots who will dominate us just because they're kind of like dumb and bad at what they do. I mean, what's the thing I learned from Kathy is that it's not the good algorithms we should be scared of. It's the crappy algorithms. Yeah. Those are the ones that really screw people over. Well, well, didn't we in Hiroshima, wasn't, wasn't that bomb like orders of magnitude larger than it was meant to to be uh, there was actually even, oh i don't know yeah there 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 was uh there was a miscalculation on a certain metal that they used that they actually thought was going to lessen the blow that was meant to just be like more of a warning or a flex and and they had uh they had a they there was like a u.s um like surveillance plane and a ship like far off the coast which was you know far 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 from the distance projected mathematically from what the 
what the explosion would be. And it turned out to be, it, it was much, much, much larger than it was ever meant to be because of a slight miscalculation <laughs> of like, oh, if you use this metal, it will actually lessen the blow. And then it turned out it made it five times or some orders of magnitude larger than it was meant to be. And you worry about that with like algorithms or something, you know? I mean, just to say like a couple more things, because not everybody takes an information through books. There's a, there's a wonderful YouTube channel called Mathophile. So if your thing is like, I like to watch videos on YouTube, which I know is like Mm -hmm. a huge mechanism for learning. um, They just have like tons and tons of like very enjoyably like produced videos about that. That too is mostly about more, a mix of sort of more contemporary research topics and older stuff. And then, just to kind of end on a historical note, there's a fellow called Martin Gardner, who I think most people would say is the great math popularizer. He died a few years ago, but um, he wrote a column in Scientific American. Um, gosh, it must be for like 30 years. And I think every mathematician as a kid read these books, these books of his columns. And the reason I bring that up last is because you know, when you say the way that many people kind of feel deadened by their experience kind of reading these dusty textbooks and math, I think, you know, what's missing is what's missing, like content. No, that content is actually like really deep and good. Like algebra is actually like a great, wonderful subject. What's missing, I think, is this sense of play and this sense of fun that's so Mm -hmm. fundamental to the actual practice of mathematics. And certainly when I write, I try to kind of have that playful sense as I go, because I think that's, that's not sort of some kind of like sugar coating you're putting over the real thing that is the real thing and i think gardner um his column am i remembering the time? i think it was called like mathematical recreations mm. and it's probably the best ever at sort of combining true mathematical depth with that spirit of play and that spirit of fun that in the end animates everything you want to do as a mathematician so i feel like even though that stuff's old it absolutely like holds up for any reader today what what if what if you literally like what if I was just like I just want to because I I often have this this uh, feeling that I want to do as I just want to start playing with some numbers and solving some equations and stuff are there any like I just want to go back through like burn through algebra one see when start stuff get starts getting hard again and work my way up to like calculus or something is there is there any uh, is there any good programs out there that uh that you know of that can that you can just start going on and trying to do problems sure sure i mean i would say for curricular stuff like that i mean i think like you know everybody sort of says khan academy like a cliche but they say that Mm -hmm. because it's actually like really good and those are like i mean our students definitely watch khan academy videos in conjunction with actually like going to class and i think they really like them i think those are really Mm -hmm. good i think if you if you want to pay there's a wonderful, wonderful group of courses from a website called Art of Problem Solving, which offers online courses, you know, really starting from pre-algebra and like going all the way up through like well beyond calculus. Now, most of your fellow students are going to be kids. You got to accept that. So you got you, you got to be have the have the ego strength to like not mind if like there's an 11 year old in there with you who's picking it up a little faster than you. That might happen. OK, so be it. Well, that's you don't the know beauty of math is it yeah. doesn't matter right. your age or your gender or race or you know, whatever else. It's it's you you do the work and you and uh, you figure it out and you get the problem correct or you don't. Yeah, no, and so their courses I think are like really good, really well designed, and again they have that spirit of exploration that I think sometimes uh, is hard to do in a kind of more like mass produced context. 
Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining and joining me, Jordan Ellenberg. And uh, I'll have to, uh, we'll, we'll have to, um, uh, I'll have to say hi next time I'm in Madison. Um, awesome. Yeah. Thank I'm, you so I'm, much for having me on. Do you actually come here? Yeah. Well, I'm in La Crosse, Wisconsin at the moment. And I, oh my uh, God, I did not even know that. I, well, uh, I, I typically go through Madison. I, I mean, I, I usually am on the road and I, I typically go through Madison. I recorded, let's see. I recorded two of my three comedy albums at Comedy on State, and oh, wow. uh, I typically so go through Madison times, yeah. once or twice a year. So yeah, one of my favorite cities. So uh, yes, yeah. when it will be the coffee shops are open again. We can sit outside and and do whatever. It's great. Sounds terrific. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. Check out Thanks, Jordan's everybody. book, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>